Remain standing for our sermon text. I'm going to read the same passage I read last week from Romans 8, starting in verse 18 through verse 25. Again, give your ear to God's inerrant word. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory about to be revealed in us. For the eager expectation of creation waits expectantly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its bondage to corruption and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together in birth pains Right up to the present. And not only creation, but even we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we ourselves also groan within ourselves, waiting expectantly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, We wait expectantly for it with patience. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and thank God for his word. We do thank you, Father, for this truth. Because your word is truth. Help us to conform ourselves to the truth. Even in this hour, even on this day where we're together worshiping you around your word and around your table. We, so we need your spirit to help us celebrate glory in and obey your truth. We ask for this and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you peeked at the sermon title, you notice that this is part two of a series. If you missed last week's message, that's okay. I try to preach sermons typically that stand alone. And so even if I'm going through two or in this case, maybe three part series, I I try to make sure that if you missed one, you're not left out or, or so that you're understanding what's going on. But if you missed last Sunday, I do encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon because it, it does establish and complement many of the things that we're going to be thinking about today and next week. And by way of introduction, for most of you by way of reminder, let's just do a quick overview of what we studied a week ago about groaning and glory. Groaning and glory. The title of the series is, you know, we're in a big series on Romans, but this is a little series within Romans called groaning for glory. And, and while we know what it means to groan, we're less familiar with, with what it means to experience glory, biblical glory, God's glory, the glory of Christ. Everything in our life groans, right? Our bodies groan, our hearts groan, our marriages groan, our friendships groan, our sleep groans, our judicial systems groan, our politics groans, our internal relationships groan, our plans groan, our land groans, maybe be more appropriate to say our land growls at us at at times, our pets groan, our livestock groan, 
all of creation, as far as the curse is found, groans. And we feel it. Creation and Christians groan because man sinned. That's why. Adam's sin in the garden opened wide the door to sorrow and sickness. Human rebellion invited death and disease into creation, into the human body, into the human soul. Ever since Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, mankind, all of us, have been longing to get back to the glory that we once enjoyed. We're, we're born craving something that nothing in this world can satisfy. No set of circumstances can scratch that underlying itch that every human is born with. And so if you were here last week, you may remember that, that this deep longing according to C.S. Lewis, is at root a desire to be approved by God. It's a biblical idea, not just Lewis's idea. We want more than anything our Creator's approval. And the biblical word that expresses that desire is, is glory. We want God to see a glorious creature when He, when he looks at us. We, we, we want God to turn His face toward us and smile the way a new father Smiles at his newborn child, his firstborn. We want to participate in brightness and beauty. We want to be bright and beautiful in God's presence. The scriptures promise in Daniel 12, for example, that one day every son of God will be transformed to shine like the stars. We'll, we'll become inconceivably resplendent inside and out, and we'll live in a majestic new creation that is equally inconceivable to us today, right now. We, we can't even imagine. God's not just going to restore us to the conditions of Eden. There'll be more glory in heaven, far more glory in the new heaven and new earth that God's going to create when Jesus returns than Adam and Eve experienced in Eden. And we can't even imagine that. Early in mankind's history, at the very beginning, the glory departed, and we want it back. We, we, we don't always recognize that that's what we want, and so we try to find it elsewhere. But the aching and the yearning for it never go away, which is why we're trying to find the satisfaction for it. it that, that aching and that yearning that we're born with it's there when we wake up. It's there when we go to bed. It permeates our dreams. It's with us every waking hour. The glory has departed from our bodies and souls and from all of creation, but the desire for that glory has not departed. And so ever since the fall, God's creation and God's children have been groaning, to use Paul's word, groaning for glory, yearning to regain what was lost, suffering in anticipation of what is to come. And last week we discovered that, that, that groaning and glory, those are two words Paul uses, and this groaning and this glory are inseparable. They go together. You, you, you never get one without the other. If you're groaning now, in the biblical sense, in the way Paul 
is talking about groaning here, you'll experience the glory that is to come. And if you end up getting in on the glory that is to come, you will have groaned your way to it. At, at the same time, groaning and glory are distinct. That was the second point last week. They, which is to say they, they characterize two distinct ages, eons, eras. We live in the age of groaning. The age of glory is yet to come. And there's no glory in this age and there's no groaning in the age to come. Finally, we saw that groaning and glory are unalike. They, they cannot be compared, Paul says, with each other. He says in another place, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, we do not lose heart though our outer self, our outer man is wasting away, our bodies are wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, temporary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all, beyond all comparison. The fourth thing we observe, and we begin to see this initially in Romans 8.19, is that groaning and glory are all-inclusive. Not absolutely, there's a caveat here, there's a qualification here, but they are all-inclusive in the sense that they apply to all subhuman creation as far as the curse is found and to all Christians. Verse 19, for the eager expectation of creation waits expectantly for the revelation of the sons of God. So Paul's writing from a cosmic perspective. The present suffering and future glory of God's creation and God's people are interconnected. So as, as the people of God go, so creation goes. Both on the negative side of that on, and then on the, at the end on the positive God's creation and God's children suffer together side by side and will also be set free together in the same moment. Nature participates now in the groaning caused by sinful mankind and it will participate in glory when redeemed mankind is raised from the dead. That phrase, the revelation of the sons of God in verse 19, refers to the resurrection of believers at the second coming of Christ. It points to the time when our sonship, our adoption as sons, will be publicly revealed to everyone and everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. It points to the time when we will finally and fully be conformed into the likeness of God's Son. To borrow Paul's language from a little later in Romans 8. It points to the day when our personal holiness will be perfected. It points to the day when we'll become as dazzlingly bright and beautiful as Jesus is. In short, it points to glory. The only part of creation that doesn't participate in, in the anticipatory groaning the only part of creation that doesn't groan expectantly for glory is unbelievers. And it's not that unbelievers don't suffer. They do, but their suffering is not the groaning that Paul's talking about here because it's not headed toward glory. 
It's not preparing for them an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Their suffering tragically will terminate in more suffering, in eternal suffering, if they refuse in this life to turn from their sins, to forsake their sins and turn to Christ for salvation. And so for the remainder of our time today, we're going to explore how God's creation groans for glory. And then, Lord willing, we'll come back next week to see how God's children groan for glory. Did you notice how Paul personifies creation in this text, in this passage? Groaning is something, of course, people do. But here Paul has creation doing it. This reminds us of those places in the Old Testament where the creation is summoned to rejoice or to give God glory, to praise God as if creation were, had a personality, were a person with a mouth that could praise God. So we need to ask, I've already hinted at this, but we need to ask, make sure we're clear, what, which part of creation is Paul referring to? He's not referring to angels because they weren't subjected to the futility and, and to the bondage of corruption that Paul's talking about here. So, that, so they're not included, even though they are creatures. They're a part of the creation. He's not referring to Satan and the demons or to unbelievers because they're not longing for the revelation of the sons of God. And they will certainly not share in the future freedom of God's children, as Paul calls it. When Paul says the creation, he's denoting the cosmos. He's referring to everything under heaven, besides humans, that's been subjected to the curse of futility and bondage. He's, he's talking about the physical, material world of matter and plants and trees and animals. Now, as I reread verses 20 to 22... Pay attention to how Paul says that creation is groaning in futility and how it's groaning for freedom. Groaning in futility, verses 20 and 22, and groaning for freedom, verse 21. I'll start in verse 19 where the sentence begins. For the eager expectation of creation waits expectantly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In the hope that, now in the hope that, connects back to verse 19. So, it's there, so let's take out that parenthetical so we can understand the sentence just for, for a minute. The eager expectation in verse 19 of creation waits expectantly for the revelation of the sons of God. In the hope that the creation itself, verse 21, will also be set free from its bondage to corruption and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together in birth pains right up to the present. Okay, so Paul's talking to people. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers in Romans, to churches, who need to know how to live the Christian life, 
why does he include this bit about how creation groans for its future glory? We can understand how we you know, believers, how we groan, we look forward to it. But how, how does this bit about creation affect Christians and apply to our lives? How, how does this fit the overall argument that Paul's making in this section? Well, a couple things. Paul's point here is that if even nature is waiting expectantly, and the idea here, this waiting expectantly, is, is on tippy toes with, with your, your neck craned, you know, looking, waiting eagerly. If, if nature is waiting expectantly for its liberation from futility and corruption, then we should be willing to wait expectantly and patiently for our liberation as well, our freedom as well, knowing that, that a glorious outcome is, is certain. But Paul also wants to teach us a biblical view of the cosmos, a biblical perspective on the world that he created as good in Genesis 1. God has not abandoned his creation. The world belongs to him. It always has and always will. And even though presently it's not all that he created it to be, not, not, be, not his fault, uh, it's ours. It's not everything he created it to be, but one day it will be renewed, restored, reborn. Yes, through fire, through destruction, but regenerated, transformed to be more glorious than it ever was. But right now, it's still groaning in frustration. Following Adam's disobedience, the judgment of God fell on the natural order. The ground was cursed because of man's sin. The earth immediately began producing thorns and thistles at that point so that Adam and his descendants would only be able to get food from the ground through painful toil and sweat, frustration, setbacks, misfired plans. And Paul sums up the result of God's curse on creation with one word, futility. Some translations say frustration. The Greek word Paul uses here is the same Greek word, interestingly, that translates the word at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, vanity or meaninglessness. Vanity of vanities, the preacher says. One scholar even suggested that the whole book of Ecclesiastes is a, is a commentary on Romans 8.20. The word futility carries the ideas of emptiness, purposelessness, vanity. It, it highlights the passing nature and the seeming pointlessness of this old, decaying, perishable creation and of life under the sun, as Ecclesiastes calls it. But, but you see, futility and frustration, they don't get the last word. Because creation will one day be set free, liberated from its bondage to corruption. And the phrase, in hope, in verse 20, is pivotal. Hope is the pivot on which Paul turns from the present 
groanings of creation to its glorious and hopeful end or future. God has promised that uh, creation's subjection to futility won't last forever. It's going to come to an end. It will experience a new beginning. It will be set free by being brought into the freedom that God's children will experience at the return of Christ. So our freedom is creation's freedom. And so Paul puts creation's liberation in both negative and positive terms. They're both good, ultimately, but negatively and positively. So negatively, creation will be freed from its bondage to corruption. Or some translations say bondage to decay. The word Paul chooses here means that the, that the cursed creation is sort of running down. It's, it's decaying. It's, it, because it's enslaved to an, uh, a cycle in, on its own, an unending cycle, in which reproduction and growth always give way to decline, decay, death, and decomposition. And all along the way in this cycle, as verse 22 indicates, there is pain like the pains of childbirth. And they never go away in this cycle that is unending and it's on its own without intervention from God. Suffering, futility, bondage, corruption, groaning, pain, these these are the words Paul uses. Those are all Paul's words between verses 18 and 22, just five verses, to communicate that creation is out of joint because it's under God's judgment. It's under the curse. There's a, there's a reason for it. It's, we can explain it. The Bible explains it thoroughly. It still functions, of course, God actively upholds the laws and mechanisms of nature, which, which are delicately balanced. And, and much of creation is breathtakingly beautiful. But it's still enslaved to futility, decay, corruption, and pain. When Jesus returns, however, part of the good news, that we, part of the, the hope that we have, what we have to look forward to, that when Jesus returns and gives his people, us, our resurrection bodies, God's creation will share in the glory of God's children, which is really the glory of Christ, as we saw in verse 17. And therefore, therefore, the groaning of creation is not ultimately meaningless. It's not ultimately vanity of vanities because it's headed somewhere. It's moving toward glory. And one of the ways Paul conveys this truth is through the imagery of the pains of labor, of childbirth. He says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together in birth pains right up to the present. 
Just as a woman's birth pains end in the birth of a child, so also creation's birth pains will end in the birth of a new creation. You see, the labor pains that, that are ubiquitous, that cover the entire earth, give us assurance that the, that, that the new world is going to emerge. It's coming just as surely as the birth pains are real. It's a promise from God. Now, in the Jewish apocalyptic literature, both inspired apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament and the uninspired uh, literature between the two testaments, Israel's sufferings were uh, often seen as preparation for this new birth, this cosmic Birth. And sometimes in, in the literature, it's, it's referred to as the woes of the Messiah or the birth pains of the Messianic age. That's in the non-inspired literature. But, but, but it's getting at something biblical. In other words, they, these, these pains, they were seen as the painful prelude to the victorious arrival of the Messiah, who Israel believed would usher in the cosmic new birth. And we see that in passages like Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 11 and, and some of the Psalms. We'll get to those in a few minutes. But, but Jesus himself used this imagery. He picked up this, this, this language and this imagery in his own apocalyptic discourses. In Matthew 24, he speaks of false prophets, false messiahs, wars, famines, earthquakes, apostasy, betrayal, Deception, lawlessness, persecution, all kinds of groaning in Matthew 24. And these are all the things, he says, all these things, he says, will continue until he comes. And so in Matthew 24, 8, he says, all these things are the beginning of birth pains. They're only the beginning of the birth pains. It's not the birth, it's the birth pains that, that precede the birth, that precede the new birth of creation. And these unfortunate things that take place in creation are evidence, if we believe the scriptures, that the new birth is coming. The new heaven and the new earth are coming. Even if creation continues to labor for another 2,000 years or another 20,000 years, when it's finally over, when Jesus finally returns and the new creation is born, we'll look back on the labor pains of this old creation and see that it was light and momentary. We'll see that it was light and momentary afflictions that stored up for us an incomparable weight of glory in the new heaven and the new earth where we will find ourselves. The expectation that creation will be reborn was not original to Paul or Jesus for that matter. The Old Testament envisions in various kinds of ways and various kinds of genres, it envisions this cosmic rebirth. It envisions a time, and it's always connected with the time of the Messiah, when the Messiah would come and renew not just Israel, but the whole world, the whole cosmos. The end of Psalm 102 predicts poetically that this creation will wear out like a piece 
of clothing, like a garment. It'll pass away, the psalmist says, and God will give it new clothes to wear. So that's the imagery. Isaiah 65 says that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. That's exactly the phrase that he uses, and John borrows it, uses it in, in, the, in, in Revelation. He will create a new heaven and a new earth, which will include a new Jerusalem. And according to Isaiah 35, the desert, I'm quoting, the desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. So that even the desert will be a prosperous place. Isaiah 11 poetically describes the worldwide peace and righteousness in the new creation, which will no longer be characterized by groaning of any kind. As I read Isaiah 11, 6-9, which is familiar probably to all of you, bear in mind that the predatory animals in this prophecy likely represent powerful nations which will no longer prey on weaker nations. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain for the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. And the New Testament's far from being silent on this topic. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus, he's talking to his disciples and he speaks of creation's future rebirth. Uh, some translations, maybe your translation, uses the word regeneration, which means rebirth. And it's a very interesting word that Jesus chooses to use there. Which will take place, Jesus says, at the Lord's second coming. And so he, he and, and he's talking about the establishment of the kingdom in that passage, passage. The eternal kingdom and the eternal cosmos will be created on the same day when Jesus appears. He says in that same sentence that that's when he's going to take his throne and the disciples will take their thrones and rule. And that includes us as well. We will rule with him in the eternal kingdom when creation is regenerated. In Acts 3, while Peter is preaching to the Jews in the temple, he tells them that the restoration of all things, that's his phrase, restoration of all things is coming. And it'll happen, Peter says, when God sends Jesus back to earth to create a new world and set up his everlasting kingdom. Same word, restoration, that the disciples used when they asked, when are you going to restore the kingdom? When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So the restoration, the kingdom restoration, the, cosm uh, the, the restoration of the cosmos are coming. And Paul, Peter says it's when heaven stops holding on to Jesus, stops receiving Jesus, and the Father sends him back in Acts 3. Well, in, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, John records his vision of the new heaven and new earth. And he's given, he's given more than, than Isaiah sees in Isaiah 65. It's a glorious place where God will dwell in the midst of his people. And where all pain, sorrow, tears, and death will be eliminated. And there will be no more curse. 
listen as I read from John's visions of this world, this coming world, which will arrive when Jesus arrives. And these are both from, from the last two chapters of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I, was, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief Crying and pain will be no more because the previous things, the former things, have passed away. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 22, 1 to 5. The promise of creation's renovation and transformation includes the eradication of, of all painful and harmful elements, which will be replaced by righteousness, peace, glory, safety, joy, health, harmony, security. Should be very slow and cautious, of course, in pressing the details of the new heaven and the new earth. The future glory of God's creation and God's children is beyond our imagination. We have to live with that. We get to live with that. We should be content then to stick with what's revealed, with what God's word reveals to us, which is quite a bit, really. It says that God's physical world will be redeemed and glorified when God's people are redeemed and glorified finally. So what's this mean? What's this, how then shall we live? Should we live? What, what's this mean for us today and this week? How should we live this week in light of creation's future glory? Well, first, don't be uh, three things, and then we'll close. First, don't be surprised when things don't work out in this life. Don't be surprised when disappointments come and then keep on coming. You, you can count on troubles in this world because Jesus promised it, and, and everything he says is true. In some ways, life in this creation, the old creation, the one that's going to pass away, 
when Jesus returns to be replaced or renewed, transformed into a new one. Life in this creation is a series of minor troubles punctuated occasionally by major troubles. Your plans will misfire. Your appointments will get canceled. Your intentions will be misinterpreted. Your endeavors will fail. Your accomplishments will be undermined. Your reputation will be attacked. Your health will fail. Your loved ones will die, some of them prematurely. Your land will grow thistles and thorns and other unwelcome weeds. Don't be surprised when every day is peppered with setbacks and disappointments and inefficiencies and frustrations and futility. Your schedule and your success are not what life is all about. What matters is your sincere love for God, your sincere love for others, and your faithful endurance to the end. What matters is trusting God, loving God, and loving others. Second, don't put your hope in what you think might be able to be accomplished in this decaying, corruptible, perishable creation. Especially don't put your hope in what you think man can accomplish. Now, there's much good that we can do and that we must do, that we are called to do. And we should not grow weary in doing good just because much of what we do, much of the good we do, is laced with this, these feelings of, of pointlessness or futility. So we can do good, we must do good, and this truth about creation and its perishable, corruptible state is not an excuse to grow weary in doing good, but we must always remember at the same time The world's fundamental woes and groanings cannot be undone by you or me or anyone else. And in a sense, we must recognize that to a great extent will not be undone this side of Christ's return. We know this because we are told to look in hope to the day when they will be undone. When it will be glorified. We must pray for our leaders while acknowledging that they will inevitably fail us. We must work for justice while recognizing that justice will only prevail ultimately on the last day when God's judgment, his final judgment, sets everything right. Third and finally, Pray and long for the coming of Jesus. Paul even tells Timothy to to love the coming of Christ. Genesis 3 records creation's fall into futility when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. But Genesis 3 also records the promise of God's solution to the problem that was created in that same chapter. In the garden, Satan tried to get mankind to worship him, to follow him. And it appeared for a moment that he was, that, that the devil, I mean, he was successful to an extent, but it, it, it even appeared that he had succeeded in thwarting God's plan. When man fell, the glorious creation was tarnished. Darkness entered into man's soul. 
the thistles started coming up everywhere. It, it, it seemed maybe God's plan, his vision for creation, had been thwarted. But God intervened right away, and right away, he started doing, he did what God does. He gave a promise he, and a judgment. He pronounced judgment on, the, on Satan, on the serpent, and he promised in the same breath in Genesis 3.15 to send a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent and destroy the devil's plans forever. That prophecy, the Proto-Evangelium, was fulfilled initially and definitively when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave on the third day, destroying the works of the devil. But it will be finally and completely fulfilled when Jesus cast Satan into the eternal lake of fire. Psalm 110 predicts this event, and it uses the language of head-crushing to describe the destruction of the devil and his spiritual offspring. Listen to Psalm 110, verses 5 and 6. He, Christ, will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up dead bodies. He will crush the head over the entire earth, or crush the head of the entire earth. A lot of translations just say crush the leaders. They don't know, they don't know what to do. Why does he say head? Well, if we remember Genesis 3.15, we know why. He says that he will crush the head over the entire world. David's prophesying about the very end when all God's enemies, including what Paul calls the God of this world, Satan in 2 Corinthians 4, are crushed. When David predicts that Christ will crush the head over the entire world, he uses the same word for head, that appears in Genesis 3.15, where God says that the Savior will crush Satan's head. So ever since Genesis 3, God's people have had their eyes fixed on the coming, head-crushing Messiah. The saints of the Old Covenant looked for what turned out to be the first coming of the head-crusher. We in the New Covenant have our eyes fixed on the second coming of the Messiah. And he'll also crush heads then, including the head. And what we both have in common then is that we're looking forward to the coming head crusher. And where else can we look for help? Where else can we look but to Christ and his coming? What other hope do we have? What else can we really set our eyes on with the kind of hope that the Bible talks about when it says, in hope? Everyone but Christ will disappoint. And life in this decaying creation will always be painful and frustrating. We groan for a glory that won't arrive until Jesus brings it from heaven to earth. He's promised to return in his glory. And, that, and we know that when he does, we'll see him in his glory. And that's, that seeing is an important thing. We'll see him in his glory, and in an instant, or in the twinkling of an eye, we'll become like him. We won't all die, but we'll all be changed, Paul says. So whether we're in the grave, 
or whether we're alive, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye to be like him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. When we're made like him in his glory, the creation, which has been longing for that, for that day ever since man's first sin, the creation will become glorious too. And so no wonder the early Christians, even Paul himself, in 1 Corinthians 16.22, prayed, Maranatha, which means what? Anybody know? Oh, our Lord come, or come Lord, come our Lord. Paul praised that, and the early church took that up. It was on their lips all the time. We've, we've sort of lost that. But I'll close with the final two verses of the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Yes, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all the saints. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we long for your glory. And yet we often seek for it in things that are passing. So help us this week to set our eyes on Jesus and his glory. On his coming glory. On our future glory in him the glory that you will bestow on us, the glory that you will reveal in us, and the glory that you will reveal in all of your renewed creation. Help us to set our hope on that, even as creation sets its hope on that day. We love you and we thank you for first loving us and for giving us these wonderful promises. Help us to treasure them in our hearts today and this week and for the rest of our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.